there is no quick fix to find a COO. So I've had a lot of people in my business career ask me if I'd be the COO for their company. I'm like, you don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about my real skills. You don't know anything about the areas that I actually struggle in business. I don't know anything about you. How could you possibly want me to be your COO yet? I'm like, oh, well, you were a COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Yeah, but that company is completely different. And it would almost be like saying, let's say that I was a single guy, so I'm married. Let's say that I was single and I was looking for a, a wife. And I was like, oh, you've been married before? Why don't you be my wife? Just, just because that person's been a wife doesn't mean she'd be a good wife for me, right? So I think that's what I really wanted to show entrepreneurs and CEOs is how do you identify what you're looking for? How do you identify what you're not looking for? And then how do you go and recruit that person to bring them into your business? Once you have them, how do you build that strong relationship? How do you build the trust? How do you build stronger communication with them so that you can build that really strong yin and yang relationship? Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Welcome back, everybody, to the show. I'm super excited today. I got my man, Cameron Harold, with me today. I'm, I'm a big fan. I got to say, thank you for your time today, man. I appreciate you joining the show. Oh, Hussein, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so this is your fourth book, like you just said, with Scribe. But however, it's your sixth overall. It's like you like writing or something. I love it, though, because I've gained so much knowledge from you. I have some funny stories about 1-800-GOT-JUNK, but we'll get to that later. I really want to get our audience to know you a little bit. But in doing so, I love kind of going back in time and getting people to talk about, you know, their youth, where they grew up, the people that influenced them and kind of what got you into this entrepreneurship world into the place where you're at today. So I'll, I'm going to cover that, but I need to address one thing really quickly. No, I do not like writing books. I like having books written. That's why I work with Scribe is they've made the process so simple for me. But and we can talk about that later. But no, I the thought of sitting down and writing a book is really, really hard for me. And you guys have made the process so simple. So thank you for that. Let's go backwards. So I was groomed as an entrepreneur. When I was about seven years old, my dad was an entrepreneur. Both sets of my grandparents on both sides of my family were entrepreneurs. And I was groomed as were my brother and sister and I to all be entrepreneurs. And for the last 25 years, my sisters run her own business. My brothers run his. For the last 15 years, I've run mine, but I ran one, you know, even when I was in university, I was 21 years old. I had 12 full-time employees in my own company. So I've really kind of had that entrepreneurial venture. In fact, I did a talk that was on the main TED website about raising kids as entrepreneurs. I think it was called Let's Raise Kids to Be Entrepreneurs. It's had over a couple million views. So I was groomed to be an entrepreneur, thought like an entrepreneur, but got involved in an organization called College Pro Painters when I was in my early 20s, and I was a franchisee. And what's really interesting about a franchisee is you are an entrepreneur inside of a system. So really, there is a system created for you and you get to execute it. And in many ways, I was kind of like a COO. I had this system and I just had to make it work. I didn't have to think of it and create it all on my own. I had to make it work. And then I started to work full time at the College Pro head office in coaching franchisees. I coached 120 entrepreneurs by the time I was 28 years old. 
One was Elon Musk's brother, Kimball Musk, was a franchisee. I hired him, trained him, and coached him for a year. And then I also hired and trained and coached Peter Reeve, their cousin who built Solar City. So both very kind of early stage entrepreneurial, you know, I was coaching before coaching was even a thing. I left there and I was partnering a chain of auto body collision repair shops. We built out a, a group of auto body shops to about 65 locations, took that company public. I left there and I was hired as the president of a private currency. So similar to what Bitcoin is doing, we did it 22 years ago and we had 30,000 companies buying and selling using our digital currency instead of the US dollar. Sold that company, but right as the stock market was about to crash, when the NASDAQ fell by 78%, we were selling right into that crash. So the $64 million valuation by the time we closed was worth about $3 million. So when you've kind of lost everything, what do you do? You become a garbage man. So I joined my best friend, Brian. He had been my best man at my wedding. And I joined him to coach him and help him grow a small business. I was employee number 14. It was called 1-800-GOT-JUNK and they had 12 franchises and really wanted to grow the business. I joined and became his, his chief operating officer and I took the company from 12 locations to 330, from 2 million to 106 million and from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six and a half years. Left there, that was about 16 years ago that I left there now and I started coaching CEOs of real companies all over the world. I've coached the CEO and the second in command at Sprint. I coached a monarchy in the Middle East. I've coached a number of technology companies that have sold for well over 100 million. And then I started an organization about six years ago called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. And considering you're at Scribe, Zach Obron was the first COO at Scribe, was a founding member of the COO Alliance. Javon McCormick came into one of our COO Alliance meetings because he was really the second in command to Zach and Tucker. And then Brittany, who is your COO, was a COO Alliance member for a year as well. So I've had three, three of your people have been in the COO Alliance as members. And then I started a podcast about four years ago called the Second in Command Podcast. And I've interviewed about 245 very top level COOs of companies of brands that we know the names of. And then I've written six books. That's about it. That's me on the business. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> on the, to on say the personal... that you've been busy since seven years old is probably an understatement. <laughs> you know, my, my first business at seven years old is I did coat hanger arbitrage. So I collected coat hangers in the neighborhood and then I sold them to dry cleaners for two and a half cents a coat hanger because dry cleaners used to pay you a recycling fee for coat hangers. I remember phoning them all and, and negotiating and I wanted three cents and they only wanted to pay me two cents. And I said, how about two and a half? And the, the guy on the phone was like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm seven and I, I want more than two cents. And he goes, fine, I'll give you two and a half cents. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that. So who would you say really contributed to that mindset? I mean, was it your father, your mother, your aunt, your uncle that really some of these things. I mean, I know you, when you, your environment, there's a lot of people doing those kinds of things. You kind of absorb. But who would you say the one that kind of really led that torch? My dad, for sure. My dad was very entrepreneurial, had the idea of the week, you know, had a, a different business idea constantly. And, and he, for sure, kind of inspired me. I think what my mom did really well was she didn't coddle me. Right. Whereas so many parents today, when, you know, Sally is going to run a lemonade stand, oh, let's buy her a stand and let's stand out on the street and call people in. My parents were like, fuck no, go do your lemonade stand. And then they would sit inside the house and I'd come in and talk to them about what wasn't going well. And they'd coach me and I'd go back out and do it. 
So they stood back and let me fail, stood back and let me succeed, stood back and let me learn from experience. And then they gave me ideas and, and coaching along the way and, and went back out. And they also didn't try to turn every little business venture into some big thing. You know, if it was a two-day business or a three-week business or a one-year business, that was okay. They didn't try to turn it into something else. But yeah, my dad was definitely the entrepreneurial side of things for sure. Yeah, I love that because later on, you know, I talk about the emotions of connecting to these businesses, right? And especially as a franchisee, you learn that this is this is a process, a vehicle that you get to drive forward, right? And so I feel like at a young age, you were sort of observing and learning, but not getting too emotionally attached to one thing or another. And also learning to fail, learning to fail forward. I think that's huge. And you're right, like, you know, today's world, right? The helicopter mom and dad that just try to do a little too much for that kid that could easily succeed without their inherent constant pushing. And I really appreciate that you put that in there. The child doesn't learn enough if the parents aren't letting them learn, right? If the parents are sitting there calling in the cars to come to the lemonade stand, the kid's not learning how to do that. If the parents are negotiating with the neighbor, the kid's not learning how to do that. The parents telling the neighbor, buy three, the kid's not learning how to upsell. So because I was doing each, like I can tell you every business I ran, I could rattle off 16 different businesses by the time I was 18. I could tell you one or two very solid lessons that I learned from the experience of doing it that would have been removed had my parents been there. And I think each of those lessons stay with me today in growing my people, right? When I'm growing leaders inside of a company, I let them fail. And then I talk to them afterwards. And then I coach them and I mentor them and I use situational leadership. But if I'm always doing the work for them, oh, let me just do it for you. Well, that doesn't scale a company at all. Right. It's so powerful, man, because, you know, again, that idea of the interference, right? And, and what you can learn from failing at something. It's so powerful. But I really want to get into your book was profound, man. I mean, I've had the opportunity to kind of swim through it. I want to get through it this weekend. But, you know, this whole concept of the COO, let's be honest, there are probably 10 books a week written on and for the leader, right? Uh, this is the first one that's come across, at least my lap, about the COO, the person that genuinely takes charge of so many different elements of the business. What really inspired me? I know this has been your world, but what really inspired you to write this book specifically to COOs? And how has that resonated with the work that you do? Well, I guess there's two sides to that. So the first part is there just really isn't enough content out there for the COO or for the CEO on how to hire and recruit and onboard and build the amazing relationship with their COO. So like you mentioned, there's thousands of books written for the entrepreneur. So that was one. I really wanted to write a book for that niche because I'd been the COO. I run the COO Alliance. I run the Second in Command podcast. My entire world is the Second in Command. That was one. Secondly, I realized that if I could codify all these ideas and pull enough ideas from my COO Alliance members, pull ideas from the 245 second in command podcast guests, and I could pull their content together into a really great book. I could do them a service as well as giving them some kind of praise and some shout outs, but also really kind of cull the wisdom of the tribe and share that. So that was second. And then I guess third was clearly it's going to become a marketing vehicle for the COO Alliance, right? The more people that learn about this concept and then say, wow, I should plug my COO into this network too. There's a hundred groups for entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs can join YPO or Vistage or EO or the Genius Network or Baby Bathroll or Strategic Coach. 
all kinds of groups for entrepreneurs and there's groups for marketers and engineers and lawyers, but where do the COOs grow with each other? Where do they go to hang out with each other? So the book will be a marketing vehicle for that as well. That's so powerful. I love, you know, the clarity in your vision and what you write about and how you really get to fine tuning those things is so it's exponential because right, this is your world, right? You want to build the base camp for them. You want to build all these opportunities and resources for them. And I think you've done that so beautifully. And I, I love that you laid that out so well. So in your experience, what are the most big challenges that COOs face or maybe perhaps ones that you face during your work running those businesses? And what would you say like the number one thing that your book tries to address as far as that challenge is concerned? I think the big one is that there is no quick fix to find a COO. So I've had a lot of people in my business career ask me if I'd be the COO for their company. I'm like, you don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about my real skills. You don't know anything about the areas that I actually struggle in business. I don't know anything about you. How could you possibly want me to be your COO yet? I'm like, oh, well, you were a COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Yeah, but that company is completely different. And it would almost be like saying, let's say that I was a single guy. So I'm married. Let's say that I was single and I was looking for a, a wife. And I was like, oh, you've been married before. Why don't you be my wife? Just, just because that person's been a wife doesn't mean she'd be a good wife for me, right? So I think that's what I really wanted to show entrepreneurs and CEOs is how do you identify what you're looking for? How do you identify what you're not looking for? And then how do you go and recruit that person to bring them into your business? Once you have them, how do you build that strong relationship? How do you build the trust? How do you build stronger communication with them so that you can build that really strong yin and yang relationship with that COO, right? And then at what point is the, the person the wrong fit, right? Because at some point, the organization may outgrow that person as well. And you have to understand that natural transition to make as well and how to make that transition. Yeah. And so specifically for you, when did you decide you know, because obviously as COO, you don't necessarily own the company, right? But you're, you're definitely helping it grow and thrive and all these things. However, opportunities may come up where, you know, you may be recruited to be a CEO somewhere else, like in this topic, right? How do you know as a COO that your time here, perhaps based on the conditions and, and all these things is done and you're kind of on to something else, more challenging perhaps, or more unique, where did you find that moment of like, okay, I think I'm, I'm ready to transition or go deeper into coaching? My story is a little different. The way I found out that it was the right time to go was my best friend who was the CEO and founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK told me it was time to go. We had taken the company under my role as COO. I took them from 2 million to 106 million. And he sat me down. He said, you're the wrong guy to take us to the billion. Like you're the right guy to get us from two to a hundred but the wrong guy to go to 100 to a, to a billion. And I was like, you're right. And we both broke down crying and recognized it was time. I should have left the company six months to nine months before. It was too big at that point. You know, we had 3,100 employees. We had 330 locations. We were operating in four countries. We had 13 interrelated businesses. We had four countries that we were operating in. We had, we had 248 people at the head office. I was running seven business areas. It was just big. And that was too big for me. When they replaced me, they brought the former president of Starbucks US in as my replacement. She walked in and went, what a cute little company. Right? So I knew it was the wrong thing. And I probably should have left six months earlier. 
the way you know it's the wrong is if you're not having fun, if your skill sets are being so challenged that you can't scale. Typically, a C-level person can only go through two or three doubles in the size of the company before they probably can't continue to run it. I did six. I doubled the size of the company six times in a row. So when you go from 2 million to four, from four to eight, from eight to 16, you're probably at your peak now. It's probably a different style of organization at that point, unless you can really continue to invest in your own skills and grow your own skill sets. I was fortunate that I had a lot of strong leadership skills and could scale it, but I was the fifth of five leadership team members in a row to be replaced. So I was the last of the five of the original five to get replaced on that six-year path. What a rapid growth though. I mean, and and it's so good to have that awareness as well. Like, you know, adopting the awareness to be like, you know, I'm capped out at my skill level, you know, to go invest in myself, to go get that training, whatever it is to join, obviously what you created, you know, a place where I can grow as a COO. So I can, you know, eventually make, perhaps grow into taking a, a company from a hundred million to a billion at some point. But that's so powerful again, to know what you are strong at, what you're weak at, and to perhaps look for something else to challenge yourself. And so what happened after 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Where did you go on to? Well, it's funny because Brian, the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, is a two-time scribe author as well. He wrote WTF, which was Willing to Fail, and then BYOB, which is, I think, uh, Build Your Own Business. So Brian, you know, everybody should read WTF, Willing to Fail. Once I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I sat down and I did a series of journals and every day for about three months, I spent 20 minutes every morning and I just journaled. You know, I did mind maps and lifelines and lists, and I still got the actual notebook that I did it all in, where I just tried to examine what did I love about business and what was I good at and what did I suck at and what was I, what did I hate? In fact, a lot of my lessons from that journaling became chapter 17 of my first book. It was called Letters to My Younger Self, called Double Double. And it was that journaling exercise that I realized there were a few areas of business that I really loved to do, that I got energy from doing, and I was really, really good at. And that was coaching entrepreneurs. It was doing speaking events. It was doing media interviews and networking. Those were things that I was good at. I loved doing. I got energy from. And then there was a bunch of other stuff that I, I might have been really good at, but I didn't get energized from. So I tried to build a business that allowed me to only work in the areas of my unique ability and and just not work on the other stuff. So, you know, for 15 years, I haven't had any deliverables with any of my clients. I don't do work for clients. I tell them what to do and then I let them go do it. You know, the COO Alliance, I'm not even there teaching them all. I'm just rounding them all up and letting them teach each other. Man, that's so powerful to kind of have a moment in time where you can really sit with yourself, you know, self-examine. I'll tell you a funny story. So when 800 got junk, right, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I started a t-shirt printing company in college. And that grew, we grew to about 16, 17 employees at one point, which was amazing. However, I had my girlfriend at the time, wife, yeah, one of her friends had like a franchisee and he needed some t-shirts, whatever. So, so I got to print some of those t-shirts at one point and I was super stoked because it was a kind of a big account. We did it, I think twice, but you know, what's interesting is it's moments like that where small companies like that, I mean, locally, right? Really trust in your work, trust in your product, trust in what you're doing. I too loved you know, the, the media, the getting out there and, and getting my print shop in front of different organizations to be of service. So I just love this connectivity. But at the end of the day, that taught me a lot. You know, the, the printing world is huge. And by the time I sold it in 2020, 
I had learned so much. So I was kind of in that phase in 2021 and, and even 2022, where I was doing a lot of self-examining and doing that journaling like crazy, just trying to figure out what I loved about building that business. What are the things I don't want to do again, you know, and which led me to coaching because I, I love, I love teaching as well. And so I love this path and this moment in time where you get to really solidify what you want to do next. And I feel like sometimes people don't give themselves enough time to really, you know, just kind of recycle, rekindle those, those fires, if you will, to be able to go deeper. Can you share any examples of successful, obviously, you know, you talk about Brian, but what other people that you've worked with that you really help promote their work in a way that challenges them as CEOs to make those hard decisions. Uh, can you give an example of of something where people didn't really want to listen to you, but at the end of the day, made the right decision? <laughs> wow, there's a lot of those. I mean, oh, uh, I'm sure there is. <laughs> you know, well, Kimball Musk. I used to coach Elon Musk's brother, Kimball, and I was a reference for Elon and Kimball in their very first round of funding for Zip Two in January of 1995. So I've got a lot of stories I can go back to. Let me do a huge one for you. Sitting with the CEO of Sprint, you know, the 82nd largest company in the United States, just he and I sitting in his boardroom, talking about one of his core C-level employees and Marcelo saying that he, you know, wanted to fire this guy, but he couldn't. And I'm like, why not? And he goes, oh, he's worked for us for 20 plus years and he's got a C-level title and blah, blah. I'm like, last time I checked, you've got a CEO title. And you've said this person is toxic and no one likes him and you don't like his results and he's too corporate and bureaucratic and he's not entrepreneurial. And Marcelo put a red X through his name. And then Marcelo said, you know, when are employees no longer going to be the problem? And I laughed. I said, they're always the problem because we care about people. The more that you care about people, it's always the hardest part of your business. I said, you're running the 82nd largest company in the United States. If people are a problem for you, they're always a problem, right? And then I go to a small you know, small businesses where I've, I've coached someone who had to fire their mom or fire their best friend or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, of things. The hardest part with business is there really is no manual for all of the stuff that we have to do. You know, the, the franchisee, the original first franchisee for Portland committed suicide. We got a phone call that Phil Martin had shot himself what the fuck do you do with that? Right. I, I remember getting the phone call and I turned to Brian and he was on the phone talking to somebody and he was crying. He was talking to Phil's wife and I was talking to Phil's GM. What do you do with that? Right. So business is hard. And, and I think that's where if you have the right second in command, if you have that right COO, you're not lonely. You're not in that role all by yourself. I think what Tucker and Zach had when they started Scribe or originally Book in the Box was they had that two in a box model to divide and conquer and really build this thing, right? Where Tucker was like the spokesperson and the vision and Zach was like operations and execution. And then they brought Brittany in as their COO. And then they hired Javon to come in as really the CEO. Like you need to have some of those key people. Otherwise, it's a really, really hard path as an entrepreneur. Yes, you're 100% right. I mean, from 2008 or nine, all the way till 2020, there was definitely some darkness and some loneliness. Like, I mean, you just feel lonely. You just, it's hard to talk to your peer who, you know, may have a great career at some job or whatever, but the entrepreneurial spirit is strong. However, it is consistently challenged, right? Because it's wrapped in, you know, human emotion. And I think the biggest learning thing for me was having someone in charge, you know, an operations, a person. And I think for me, because I haven't dealt, there was a, a lot of 
you know, I went through a refugee camp. I grew up in America. So, you know, it was, it was a lot of distrust and just things that I hadn't worked through. So I didn't know how to hire someone, which actually brings me to my next question. Like, what qualities do you think a person at COO level or at least one or two qualities that you feel like you have to possess this quality or this skill to be able to operate at this kind of level, especially when it comes to emotions and human, you know, human, human interactivity. I mean, that's obviously the hardest thing, right? When you get to that level of leadership. Let me give you the kind of an, an additional part of the Portland story was the, the Portland franchise later became purchased by Lori Baggio. And Lori was on our executive team at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and he ran the division to sell franchises. So the fact that he was now a franchisee and got to sell franchises and lead that division was really powerful for us because he he really understood it. And I think that was something that helped supercharge the company was how much he and his team then understood it. The couple core things that you need to be a good COO. So any other C-level has to be good at their domain expertise. The head of marketing, the CMO has to be great at marketing. The CTO has to be great at technology. The CRO has to be great at sales. And like, so you, you know, the CFO has to be good at finance. The COO has to be good at interpersonal skills, has to be really good at leadership development, has to be really good at everything the CEO sucks at, which is tough, right? Because in some cases, if you have a CEO that is very, very strong at IT and engineering, the COO has to be good at everything else. If you've got a CEO that is very strong at sales and marketing, you're going to have a COO that might have to be strong at technology, right? So it's a real weird animal that you're trying to recruit for. It's the person who is so strong at what the CEO is weak at and a relationship that becomes kind of, I'll show you the cover of the book, like the yin and yang. It's the real yin and yang relationship that you're looking for, right? That true trusted partner. And that's what supercharges the balance the create but that brings a lot of self-awareness to the table right so it's like you know having those meetings sitting down with potential people that you're going to work with as as a coo you know being aware of what you're great at what you're bringing to the table i feel like is an exponential thing that could really help both sides of the, the yin and yang so I got to ask you, man, what did you enjoy the most? I know you, you say you want to put the writing on someone else, but what did you enjoy the most about writing this book specifically in relation to the other ones that you've written? I think I liked it because I really was passionate about the actual content. Like I really cared about COOs. I really cared about the actual content itself because I ran the COO Alliance, right? So I had this group of people who I was very passionately engaged in. And that was the core for me. That was what made the difference versus the other books were all generally about business, but there was no group that I was emotionally invested in, right? I've, I've run the second in command podcast and I've had 245 podcast guests that are all second in commands. You know, I've got 200 members of the COO Alliance from 17 countries it's become a little bit of my world. So I think the pulling the content together for them and to help them, I was much more connected to than something that was very general. That's so powerful, man. So when one of your readers picks up this book, and I'm sure many will, and begin to read through it and eventually put it down, what do you hope they feel when they put it down, when they wrap it up? What, what do you hope they feel and walk away with? I hope they feel a, a sense of understanding what it was or what it is that they're looking for. I hope they have a sense of understanding that there's a a path to get there. You know, you said something about giving them base camp. Well, 
I've been to base camp at Everest and I cheated. I took the helicopter in and I landed at base camp and had champagne breakfast. There's an actual walk to base camp. There's an actual path and a route to get to base camp. There's an actual path to going out and finding and onboarding, you know, recruiting and onboarding and building a relationship with a strong COO. And you can't quick start over that path. You can't just hire the first one that you encounter. You can't just say, oh, you've been a COO, come be mine. I try to give people the system to actually do that so that they can have that success. That's amazing. Cameron, you are certainly a rock star, my friend, and it has been a, a pleasure and an honor to have met you today. I was seriously looking forward to it because I felt like I had way too many questions for you at once. And I was like, wait a minute, this isn't going to be a coaching session, it's an interview. <laughs> but I just want to say congratulations on your book. I think we all love those books that are so unique, but also directly speaking to us. And for those many people out there right now, the COOs of the world, and even CEOs who know they need to help their, their second in command, you are certainly that go-to person for that work. The book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. Besides checking out the book, where can people uh, find you, Cameron? All six of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Um, I actually did the audio recording for the Second Command book, so it's in my voice as well. And then they can also check out the COO Alliance. They go to the COOalliance.com. And then lastly, definitely take a look at the Invest in Your Leaders course. It's investinyourleaders.com. Beautiful. Thanks again, Cameron. I really appreciate your time today. It was an absolute honor. Thanks, Hussein. Appreciate it. It was fun. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.